Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. I'll be reading this morning out of the English Standard Version. So if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, it will be a, it'll read a little bit differently. Um, but let's read together these nine verses of Psalm 113, and then we will pray and get to work. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is trustworthy, that it is without spot, blemish, or error. I pray now that it is as, as it has been read, and I pray it will be faithfully explained. You would transform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last weekend, I was given the opportunity to um, take a little trip, a little father-son trip to Nashville, and uh, we had a good time. One of the must-see spots for me, at least, was the Johnny Cash Museum. Um, I had already been there, actually, I had been there a few years before, but they added some new, uh, new things, and so since we were going anyway... Johnny Cash was high on my list to go and see the museum. And not just for my visit to the museum, but through reading various books about Johnny Cash, listening to his songs, uh, reading different things that people have posted about Johnny Cash all over the place. I can tell you a lot about Johnny Cash. I'm not going to give you that pleasure this morning to give you too many things about Johnny Cash. But for me, Johnny Cash is someone that's very special. And all of you sitting here, I think probably most of us at least know the name Johnny Cash, if not all of us know who he is. We could probably pick his picture out of a lineup. Maybe we know some obvious things about him, like he was a singer, a songwriter, he was the man in black. We can say all kinds of things about him on the surface. And for people, nerds like me, I could tell you when he was born, where he was born. Uh, I can tell you what year some of his most famous albums were released. I can tell you um, all kinds of interesting little details and side note stories about Johnny Cash that none of you would probably be interested in hearing. 
But when you stop and think about how a big a figure Johnny Cash is, it's kind of hard to estimate how many people he's impacted with his life and music. And you may be sitting here thinking Johnny Cash isn't exactly my cup of tea, but you know who he is, and you can probably name at least one or two of his songs, even if you don't listen to that type of music, which just speaks to the power of his presence. And as you walk through that museum and you get to see video uh, footage of his concerts, you're just struck with his charisma. There's something about him that says, I'm, I'm important, without being prideful. He has a way of coming through the screen, even beyond the grave. He has a power. He has a presence. He has a quality about him that makes you think, there's nobody like this guy. He's just special. He's unique. And maybe Johnny Cash isn't that person for you, but you probably have someone that you look at in that regard. Maybe it's an athlete or another musician. But we have people in our lives that we view from afar and perhaps from beyond the grave, people of history. And we boost them up on these pedestals. And we think of them and we, we rightfully give them credit for the things that they accomplished. However, as big and great as Johnny Cash is, someday he will be forgotten. It's amazing that 60 years ago, he was just beginning his career. And here, 60 years later, there's an almost 30-year-old man standing here who knows all kinds of things about him. That's pretty impressive. But I wonder how many people 60 years from now will know anything about Johnny Cash. Maybe a few, maybe a handful, maybe he'll be still a footnote in different music history texts and, you know, pop culture type things. He'll be a reference that you can draw back to, but it'll be so dated, it's not pop culture anymore, is it? He's already getting to that level. And as great and as incomparable as Johnny Cash seems to be, as I already mentioned, some of you would be saying, you know, Johnny Cash doesn't do it for me. Or, you know, Johnny's okay, but I'm an Elvis fan. And don't talk to me after the service if you're an Elvis fan. I'd... Johnny's the man. But seriously, there's all kinds of debate. It's subjective whether you like Johnny Cash or not. You may have some kind of regard for him, but you don't maybe don't like him, or you don't understand him, or his music isn't accessible to you. So it's all subjective of how famous he really is. And no matter how incomparable I may view Johnny Cash to be, he's just a man that puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like me. And as we look at our text this morning, we find some descriptions about a being... who truly is incomparable. We find the question that this psalm writer is, is the heartbeat of this whole text. Verse 5, he asks, Who is like the Lord our God? That's the question he's maybe wrestling with. Maybe it's just a, a wonderful rhetorical device that he's using to say, there's no one like God, and certainly that's the answer to the question. Spoiler alert, if you were waiting to get the answer at the end, I'm putting out my cards right now. 
There's no one like him. We find in this text, in all and every page of this Bible that we laud, description and interaction with a God who is truly incomparable, that we can truly say is the most unique, special, important, looming figure in the whole of history, not just one little snippet of this in this area of this magnitude. He truly transcends all things. And this morning, I want us to see that I think the psalmist is giving us two basic reasons why that's true. Why we have to just come to the point where we say, who is like the Lord our God? And no, there is no answer to be given. And those two reasons are very simply, I'm going to give them to you now. Firstly, that God is highly exalted above all things. And the second reason that God is so incomparable is because he stoops far down to the heavens and the earth. And I hope we see this morning that those two things may sound opposite, but they come together to form a beautiful foundation for truth and for the gospel. But before we dive right in, let me just back up and say a few things about this psalm. We're kind of just plopping down right here in the middle. Psalms is maybe the easiest book to do that with. But as we come to Psalm 113, we're actually starting a set of psalms that have been come to be called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And all that means is Hallel is the word for praise. So in, uh, in some of your translations, I'm certain it says hallelujah instead of praise the Lord. And so they take that Hallel and they associate this with Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Uh, They all uh, have an element of praise. They're all praise psalms, and they all have some kind of connection to the Exodus event. That's why they're called the Egyptian Hillel Psalms. And so in this set, um, the reason that is perhaps worthy to be noted, not just so that we know where this comes from and where it falls in line, but also these are the set of psalms that more, more than likely Jesus would have sang with his disciples after the Lord's Supper. So the meal we just uh, celebrated, it is fitting, I guess, that we sing, uh, that we read and, and think about this psalm. It was more than likely, this, was, this could have been one of them, at least, that he would have sung with his disciples after they finished and left the upper room. We have no uh, indication of who wrote Psalm 113. There's no title. There's no introduction. It's just, here it is. Some people have said it's David. Others think it was Samuel. Um, I think most scholars would say it's David, but I'm just going to refer to it as the psalmist because I don't know. But that's just a background to let you know where we are. And um, I want to dive in and think through those two reasons I gave you at the beginning. Number one, first of all, let's think about that God is highly exalted above all things. And this is so clear in this, these opening four verses. And it's important to notice that just structurally here, the psalmist is teaching us with the way he formats his text. Verse 5 is the key verse of understanding. Who is like the Lord our God? That's the question that we're meant to be asking as we read this psalm. 
And it's right smack dab in the middle. And the verses that precede it are talking about God's bigness and his majesty and his eternal nature and his, desi- and his uh, worthiness to be praised. And in the last four verses, he's turning and talking about how God stoops down or looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And that's where I'm taking my two main headings this morning. So if we look at the first half of this psalm, it's, it's so, the language is so big and so grandiose, it's hard not to notice it, isn't it? I mean, look at how many times he says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He uses the name Lord four times in those two verses. Four times he uses that all capital letters Lord, which is, trans, which is from the Hebrew is Yahweh, which is his revealed name in Exodus chapter 3. Another reason that these psalms are the Egyptian Hillel psalms. This is the connection, right? So God, when he appears to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush, Moses uh, is so bewildered, He's given his commission to go and rescue uh, the Israelites from Egypt. And he says, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord answers him from the bush, tell him that I am sent you. That's his name that he gives, I am. Which has been translated Yahweh in the Hebrew and we get our word Lord, all capitals. And the significance of his name is not to be missed. I am. His name is not I was. And his name is not even I will be. It's a little bit incorrect of us to talk about God in the past tense, isn't it? We can talk about what he's done in the past tense, but he is never past tense. Because he's always present. He's always existing. And it's even a little bit incorrect for us to say, well, God will be such and such. Because he is who he is. And his name in these verses just give us the opportunity to just pause and try to wrap our minds around, unsuccessfully might I add, his nature and his character. Because when we hear that word, I am, when we think about how... He is, and he never was, and he never will be. He just is, and he's constant. We have to wrestle with the fact that he's an eternal being. He doesn't have a beginning, and he doesn't have an end. We have to start thinking about the fact that he is completely independent of everything. That he's, as the text tells us, high above all things. That there is nothing that he's connected to that he needs There's nothing that he is required to do except what he requires of himself. We even have to start thinking about all the attributes that we we give to God, that he is love, that he is good, that he is kind, that he is patient, that he is wrath, that he is judgment, that he is all these things. He's holy. He doesn't just have those things to give He is those things to be. He doesn't just have love to give to us. He is love and he's present with us. He doesn't just have wrath to pour out. He is a God of wrath that looms. 
over those who do not believe. He doesn't just have justice. He's not capable of justice. He is just. He can be no other. And it becomes difficult to wrap our minds around these things, doesn't it? To think, how can a person be so pure? And that's part of why he's, that, that is why he is so worthy of our praise, isn't it? He is perfection. He is perfection. George Swinnick, the Puritan, wrote about God's perfection, that God is perfect in that he, is, he possesses everything he needs. And he's also perfect in that nothing can be added to him to make him any better. We, as human beings, can be perfect in the first way, right? We, we have what we need. We are human beings. We are complete human beings. In some sense, we are perfect in that regard. But none of us are perfect in the second sense, are we? All of us need something to be added to us. All of us could always use a helping hand. All of us need the kindness and care of our God. All of us are dependent beings. God is not the same. God is perfect in its completion. He needs nothing. Even in his very nature, he is triune, meaning he doesn't need our relationship. He doesn't need our love or our approval or even our praise, though he is do it. He doesn't need it. He has complete um, unity of his being in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is of himself. He is for himself, and he is by himself. He is completely other than us. And that's why we are to praise him. That's why we, his servants, his covenant people, are to give him praise and to praise his name, I am. Because he is so big. He is so mighty. He is so majestic that we can't even possibly wrap our minds around how great he is. He's transcendent. He's other. He's seated high. He's above all nations. Not only in the fact that he created them, but that he, does, he governs every minute decision that happens in every government, by every leader, in every nation, tribe, and tongue all over this planet. He's in control of it, he knows it, and he's guiding it and shaping it to tell his story. Isn't that a comfort? Doesn't that make us stand and say, who is like the Lord our God? How can we even fathom it? We read it in Psalm 8. Our Lord is so majestic. What are we that we, he's even mindful of us? And this is our God. And he is worthy of our praise. But secondly, I want us to see that our God, as transcendent and big and mighty and glorious and holy and perfect as he is, stoops far down to the heavens and the earth. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, verse 6, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, And lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. 
I chose Johnny Cash this morning because I really like Johnny Cash and because I do think of him in an other sense that he is unique and special on a human level. But I also chose him because he is somewhat of a picture for us of this aspect of God as well. Johnny was not someone who took his fame and his status and wielded it with reckless abandon and trampled the little guy or boasted over it. Surely he had an ego, no doubt about that. But he saw the plight of people who were less than him in some respects, people who were needy, and he fought for their rights. He was passionate about prison reform and seeing prisoners have better treatment. He was passionate about the plight of the Native American. He saw the, the desperate, lowly state of some in our society then and now. And he chose to use his status, his name, and his recognition to try to fight for their good. To try to take them from where they were to put them up a little higher. And isn't that exactly what's pictured right here? Isn't that exactly it? And I'm, I'm not saying that Johnny Cash is some hero. But it's just a small little shimmer, isn't it? Just a little ray of human ability to, to model God's nature, isn't it? That he had no responsibility to fight for the rights of prisoners. But he did. He had no responsibility to t come down from his uh, big lake house in Hendersonville and go to San Quentin or Folsom Prison and do concerts for them just to raise their spirits. He didn't have to do any of those things. And that's really what this text is primarily speaking to, is people who socially and economically and politically perhaps and just overall are just down on their luck or are just beaten down or they're the oppressed group in society and he's saying that God sees them and he creates these incredible reversals where he, he chooses the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the folly to, to shame the wise. And it's all over scripture, isn't it? And we see this all over the scriptures that God chooses weak fragile, frail little Moses who himself didn't believe he could accomplish what God had called him to do and says, no, I'm going to do it through you. And time and time again throughout the Old Testament and the New, we see him choosing the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the weak men, not the men who we thought were going to be the heroes of the story. Peter and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is kind of a klutz isn't he? I mean, he's kind of clunky. He has some good moments, and then he has some bad moments, doesn't he? I mean, he's the one that says, hey, Jesus, I know you're talking about this crucifixion thing, but I'm not going to let that happen. Peter, you don't get it. Jesus says, you have to get behind me, Satan. But Jesus also told Peter, I'm going to use you and build my church. Paul was rampantly trying to destroy Christianity and God reversed him blinded him so that he could see Jesus in his full glory 
And Paul became the most impactful missionary, perhaps of all the world, certainly of the, of the New Testament and of the early church. And he wrote half of the New Testament. Nobody was picking Paul or Saul, as it were, when they were stoning Stephen. But God had already chosen Paul. So we have this lofty, majestic God who stoops far down to the affairs of men and women like you and me. How can that be? I mean, even the way this is phrased, he says, this, this psalmist says, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Even the heavens are far down for the Lord to stoop. And I'm using the word stoop, not just uh, randomly, but some of your translations may have that word stoop. And I kind of prefer it over the, the looks far down because it's not just God just doesn't look from afar and see. He actually comes down and enters in, doesn't he? He's not just looking from afar. He's not just, oh, yeah, they're in trouble down there. And the text bears that out, doesn't he? He raises the poor from the dust. He raises the afflicted and the needy from the ash heap. Or from the dunghill, as other translations put it. So we have this transcendent, majestic God who now reveals himself. I'm not just this big out there being that you have to tremble with fear before, though he is that being. But I am an imminent, personal, caring, loving God who sees you in your moment of need. And will reverse it. Not because you deserve it, but because it glorifies me. He gives us another example in verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. And this verse is one of the reasons some people think Samuel wrote this song. Because this is almost directly connected to 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is very similar to what Hannah sings or prays when she is blessed with a child in Samuel. And if you just remember, just Hannah was um, barren. She had been praying for years that the Lord would give her a, a child. And she was, uh, she was derided by, uh, by others. She was shamed for her barrenness. And the Lord blessed her, opened her womb, gave her a child, and she... Um, devoted Samuel to the service of the Lord in the temple. Samuel became the prophet who uh, anointed Saul and David, king of Israel. And this is a um, this is a difficult verse for some of you, maybe, because perhaps you are still barren. Perhaps you are wrestling with the thought that you may not have children. And some of you read this verse and know the joy that comes with being barren and being given the blessing of children. Or perhaps you don't know the struggle of being barren per se, but you know the joy of having children and having a home. And being a joyous mother. And I would just say as just a, just a point of application, 
that God, what God is saying in this text is that I am aware, keenly aware of every situation you're, you're dealing with. Whether it's specifically this or some other grievance or pain or hurt that you're wrestling through. God is inexhaustive in his knowledge of your every need and desire. And here's the best part. He is inexhaustive in his ability to care for it. And I do not want to give the impression that this is a promise that all barren women will have children because that's not what this verse is meaning to teach. But we, even this morning in Sunday school, touched on the fact that single people can have children. Brad brought up that we can have our own spiritual children in the faith. So perhaps, and I know from experience, not my own experience, but from just knowing other people, I have a professor in college who... His wife, he and his wife never had children. And uh, he takes great pride in saying that all the children at the college are his. Uh, he teaches them all. He teaches that entry-level course that all the freshmen have to take. And uh, he takes great, great pride and privilege in having them in their home, treating them like his own. And so there is a joy in that. And there's opportunities right here in this body if you are one of those who perhaps is not given the blessing of children. Or even if you are, there's opportunities right here. There are many young men and women who would love and need to be poured into by older men or older women. To be discipled by them, to be taught the scriptures by them, to be taught how to be men or how to be women by you. And I also want to say... Now, one of the reasons I chose this text, besides the fact that it is beautiful and that it is one of my favorite psalms, it has become one of my favorite psalms because there's a singer-songwriter that I love who has a version of this psalm that she sings. And her name is Sandra McCracken, if you want to, want to look it up at some point. But the way she sings this psalm is quite moving to me. Because we could interpret verse 5, who is like the Lord our God. We could say it like this. Who is like the Lord our God? And that's right. But when she sings it, she sings it like, who is like the Lord our God? There's a longing in her voice. There's a questioning maybe even in her mind. There's a pain even attached to that question. And I bring that up to say, don't be too shallow in your view of how to praise the Lord. It doesn't have to be happy, joy, joy, smiley, putting on a fake facade. If you're in pain, you can cry out with praise. The Lord loves the broken praise as much as the mountaintop experience of worship. So, we have this big, transcendent, beautiful, perfect God who we could never approach on our own, who we could never understand without him revealing himself, and even in his revelation, it is not complete. 
it is complete and that it is full and all that we need for life and godliness, for salvation, as he tells us. But it doesn't tell us everything we can know about God because we cannot mine out those treasures, which is one of the beauties of God, isn't it? That we can continually come to him and look at passages like this and think about his, his perfections and his glory and never get tired and never run out. And this big, mighty God stoops far down to people like you and me. Just a few things of application. First of all, this text, along with so many others in the scriptures, should be a warning to us and a demonstration of the folly of idolatry. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, idolatry is nowhere in this text. Where are you getting that from? Well, just think about this God who we've thought about for the last few minutes. If he is truly incomparable in all of these ways, why on earth are we bowing down to anything but him? And again, you may be saying, well, hey, I don't have any graven images. I don't have any altars in my living room. I think I'm safe on the idolatry front. Wrong. I know I'm wrong if I think that way, and I think we all are, aren't we? You don't have to make a statue to bow down to, to be an idolater. All you have to do is love something more than God. All you have to do is give more of your time and energy and effort and thought more than God. All you have to do is, put, is find your completion and your satisfaction and your comfort in something other than God. And I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's your work, your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's that vacation home you're saving up for or that vacation you're saving to go on. Maybe it's your Netflix subscription or your hobbies It can be all kinds of things. Maybe it's this church. It is possible to love the church more than Christ. But that's wrong. It's inverted. We love the church out of love for Christ. I don't know what your idol is, but we have them. John Calvin said, our heart is a factory making idols. We're good at it. We've perfected the process. We have idols we don't even know we have, and we're bowing down to them on a regular basis. And it shows us that when we think about idolatry and how easy it is that we slip into it, how often we are, being, we are party to it, it shows us that unlike perhaps some of these people that the psalmist is talking about, the poor and the needy and the ash heap, they may be there of no fault of their own. But when we find ourselves in the ash heap, we have thrown ourselves willingly down into the pit. We have seen the beauties of God and said, nah, I'll go over here instead. We've willfully chosen to spit in God's face and turn our backs on him time and again. And so when we find ourselves in that pit of destruction, we cannot point our fingers at other people around us. We certainly cannot blame God. We have to only blame ourselves. But that brings us to our 
the second little thing I want us to remind you of, I want to remind you of, and it's no little thing. Where else but in Jesus Christ, who else but in Jesus Christ do we see his transcendent glory and his imminent humility more? Here's Jesus, eternal, unchanging, high and lifted up, lofty, seated on high, and yet he willingly comes down in the form of a baby, helpless and weak. And he grows up as a boy and into a man. And he is faced with all kinds of trials and temptations, faced with all kinds of uncertainties in his path, all kinds of frustrations. And yet he is completely blemish-free. He has not spit in God's face. He has not cast himself into the pit. He has done what Adam and you and I could never do. Live a perfect, righteous, holy life. And then he is betrayed. And he is mocked. And he is humiliated. And he is beaten. And he is bruised. And he is, his flesh is ripped. And his blood is spilled. And he is nailed to a cross. And he dies. For no crimes that he has committed, but for our crimes. And this, and it's in Jesus that we see the fullness of this beauty, isn't it? Because it's not just he's stooping down to lending helping hand, as perhaps it seems in this text. No, he's stooping down to take on our infirmities. He's stooping down to take on our guilt and shame that we deserve to bear and bear the punishment for. He is becoming the weak and the poor and the needy and making and creating and completing the ultimate reversal. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. He takes our punishment, we get his glory. We sit in the highest of seats with princes, not just princes, but with God himself. He raises us up to be seated with him. It's in Jesus that we see the fullness of the beauty of this text Because he is that lofty, transcendent, beautiful, unchanging, eternal being. And he is a man like you and me. And he takes on all of our weakness so that we could have his strength. He takes our burden so that we could be set free. This morning, if you do not know this Jesus, this Jesus who willingly laid down his life for you and for me, I would plead with you to gaze upon him. I plead with you that these words, weak and feeble as they may be, that these words right here are not weak and they do not come back void. I would plead with you to run to Christ, to find him as not only this big, mighty, majestic God, but a, but a kind and loving servant who seeks to embrace you and to wipe all of your sin and your guilt and your shame away. Would you come to him? Would you repent of whatever idols you've made? Would you repent of your transgression against him? Would you look to him as your savior? Would you run to him? 
And if you do know this Jesus, if you have run to him in repentance and faith, will you be in awe of him this morning? Will you be reminded this morning that Jesus is not someone we should take lightly? He is not someone we can just fluff off. He is not someone we can just treat like any other person. He is the eternal, unchanging, mighty, transcendent God. And will we repent of our continued folly of idolatry? Will we afresh be reminded of how he paid our ransom? How he took our place and that we get his and that we have glory with the princes and with seated on high with our God to look forward to if we will persevere to the end, if we will continue to be people who repent and believe in the gospel, rest in his goodness and strive for holiness. Who is like the Lord our God, Jesus Christ? who is seated on high and who stoops far down on the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you again that your word is trustworthy and true. I pray that in these moments that we've spent thinking about your word and about your son and about your character and about your glory, and about your condescension to meet us in our need, that you have stirred us up to praise and glory in your name, to bless your name, to rejoice in our salvation that we have been given freely in Jesus Christ. And we would put away all the things that distract us from you. You'd stir us up to love and good deeds. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.